This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Hi, I'm Dusty. I'm Scott. I'm Luke. And I'm Jenny. Of the Reading Envy Podcast, right? That's right. Okay. Um, and we're talking about The Girl Who Was Plugged In by James Triptree Jr., also known as Alice Sheldon. I guess that was her real name. And uh, it was published in 1973. There's no audiobook available. Mm-mm. Do you want to tell the reason why there's no audiobook available? Because we were chatting about this the other day, and it's quite interesting. Yeah, um, I, I forgot about it, but I think somebody reminded me. Was it you, Jenny, about how she died? I don't think that has anything to do with why they wouldn't make an audiobook. Uh, well, I think that it's part of the reason that uh, the estate doesn't <laughs> step in and do something about it. Well, they named an award after her, so clearly the community is still open to her. I guess, yeah. I mean, uh, there was at some time some connection uh, to the Virginia Kid Ed Agency. Um, this paperback book that I'm holding names that as the uh, agent's estate. Yeah, they still are listed in the Copyright Center as being the state holder, but Virginia Kid has died, so yeah. I'm not sure who has it now. It's it's disappeared into uh, so that there's no audiobooks available. There's no there's no new uh, paperbacks or I don't I don't even think there's ebooks available. Is there? I don't think so. I mean, well, there's a it's, handy handy PDF version of this one. That's yeah, like, it's <laughs> online because it's been abandoned. But uh, yeah, but well, it doesn't got, make sense I, that nobody is going to be investing in um, audiobook recordings of this because you know you don't know who the estate is, you don't know what's going to happen. You know, and we've seen yes. this happen time and time again with other um, other projects where someone will be like, "No, this is public domain." No, it's not. Who owns it? You know, who has the copyright? Who doesn't have the copyright? Who has any say? Like, who would even give permission? You know, that's well, a weird thing. The biography that came out a few years back, Mm -hmm. um, the biographer had full access to Alice Sheldon's papers, I mean, through her family. So the family is still around and invested in her work, I would say. The the book that I have is a paperback from Tachyon Publications. It's called Her Smoke Rose Up Forever. That's what I have. James Tiptree Jr. uh, Big Old Collection. And it's copyright 2004 by Jeffrey D. Smith. Mm-hmm. Um, so Jeffrey D. Smith presumably got permission uh, to do it, or maybe he's a, one of the grandchildren or something like that. Yeah, no idea. Um, that's yeah. ten years ago, though. So, but if someone's yeah. called if someone's called Smith, that immediately makes me think: is that a real person, oh, yeah. or is it like <laughs> an Alan Smithy kind of? Uh, well, if it was Smith Junior., then that'd be even more. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah. Um. Well, I yeah, I, yeah. We we should note, you know, for people that don't know, that James Tiptree is a pseudonym for Alice Sheldon. Yeah, yeah. So, so I, I I think it is interesting how she died. I went back and looked. Um, who who here's read the biography? Scott or Jenny? Oh no, I want to though. Uh, well, no, I have not read it. It's pretty interesting. She she was like a spy, uh, amongst other things. Uh, nobody knew until long, even long after this. This story was published that she was a, a, uh, not a man um, because they didn't know it was a pseudonym. She, no, they did know it was a pseudonym. Well, they're not sure, actually. Some people speculated that it was. Um, they thought it was another famous science fiction author. Um, yeah. But they didn't know that it was not 
100% a real person uh, as a man because the name is super male, right? And I guess yeah. that's on purpose. Uh, a lot of times today, you know, they use initials. Mm. Um, but James is not usually attributed to women. And uh, she did apparently use one other pseudonym, which sounds more feminine, which is Bracuna Sheldon, which is kind of a weird uh, female uh, pseudonym, but uh, Rakuna. Anyways, uh, the interesting part is uh, she killed herself and her husband, and uh, they apparently had planned it years and years before uh, they did it. Well, I read a few reviews of biography yesterday, mm-hmm. and it kind of turns out that he had made a suicide pact with her so that she wouldn't commit suicide. Mm. But uh, most of his family believes he was not in a place where he wanted to die yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she obviously was uh, one of those people who was kind of looking forward to it. Right. So it was a murder-suicide. It wasn't like a suicide pact because she took his life. I guess. <laughs> I mean... Well, he was going blind, but that was his only health in problem. The room. Um, but yeah, like normally when there's this kind of thing, oh, if I ever get so ill and I can't look after myself and I'm on a machine, it's sort of like, yeah, like when, when I'm no longer conscious, then tell the doctors it's okay to turn my uh, um, uh, turn my machine off. But when it's like 84-year-old, I'm just looking on the Wikipedia page here, Sheldon took the life of her 84-year-old nearly blind husband and then took her own. That doesn't sound like a mercy killing. It's like, oh, you're nearly blind. Well, just before you lose 100%, 100%. I mean, what would Seth think of that? You know, it's uh, a bit, bit weird. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's the 84-year-old. Um, uh, but 84, you're old yeah. in 1987. That's, you've still got another few years of life left. You know? Of course, now getting to 84 is nothing special, but back then, it, you know, but still, you, you wouldn't think, well, what's wrong with you? Almost blind. <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, and this this guy too, her husband, his name was Huntington D. Sheldon, yeah. and he was the director of the Office of Current Intelligence and of the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency from 1951 to 1961, serving under President Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. Mm-hmm. Goodness. Yeah, interesting. A very um, high-level uh, spies. Yeah, both of them. I, she was a spy too, is my understanding. At least a, of some sort of you know intelligence work. Yeah, she was there during the changeover from the OSS to the CIA. Yeah, when they created the new agency. Uh, we we did a show not that long ago about uh, a guy named Leinbarger who also used a pseudonym, Quarterwainer uh, Smith, and he was he was um, the same sort of deal except he was uh, specializing in East Asia. And uh, was also very weird writer. <laughs> the, the, the reading is his text is it's almost like proto new wave, proto uh, whatever this is, and uh, very hard to like. Seth dropped out in large part because he said it was doesn't know what's going on in this story, and I'm really glad new wave is dead myself. <laughs> I got to tell you, I I really like um, her writing. I haven't read this whole book, you know, her whole collection, but I have found that um, every story of hers that I've read, I've had to read twice. Mm. But every time that I <laughs> make that effort, it is very well worth it. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, the, the second time I read this story, um, in the last week I read it twice, and the second time I read it, um, I was 
really captured by it. But the first time I was not, I, I did, you know, skim some stuff and I was like, what is this? You know, what is that? But, but after on the second reading, I thought it was terrific. Yeah, you have to pay close attention. I mean, Very close attention. There's there's no space in between the words or the ideas. They're all compacted together. There's nothing wasted. So I can understand how some people get impatient, but I think she's one of the best writers in the genre. I don't consider her a weird writer, as you said, Jesse. Uh, well, uh, you know, you were talking about a lack of space. I think there's like bad grammar in here that makes it more difficult. I, I was like, there should be a comma here and here. Uh, but she's, you know, some of the sentences, they're, they're just not sentences at all, right? It's sort of like... Yeah, well, it's, it's made... Yeah, it would re- should be a really nice audio version um, because it really is just a person talking to you the whole time. It could be a you very know? nice audio version. I can also imagine it being totally, totally alienating because, like you're saying, you know, you read through it twice and then you're getting it a lot more the second time. Yeah, I would have preferred instead of being having to read a book twice that it be, I, I'm not saying in th- this specific instance, but you know, when I feel that, like, oh, should I have read it twice or should the author have put in twice as much work into the story to make sure that I could get it the first time around? I don't think that's the case in this one. But sometimes I do find that when I'm reading something, it's like, oh, I had to read that twice. Did I read it twice because it was so good and I wanted to pick up on all the subtleties or did I have to read it twice just because... Only then did I actually know what was going on in the story. Well, like a lot of things, like all caps um, and italicization everywhere, you know, and then sentences that... So, Scott, in your second read-through, presumably you understand what's going on from the beginning to end. Uh, Would you care to do Mm -hmm. a story summary? <laughs> no, can, well, we sure, just, can we just go back a little bit and just say when this was written? And uh, because, yeah, yeah. once we start talking about once we start talking about the subject matter, I think it's good to actually put this into uh, into position where you know w- when it was written in what did you say 1973, and it won yeah. the Hugo Award for Best Novella in 1974. So it's quite short. It's, no, it's not novel. It's uh, you know yeah, what maybe 30, 40 pages long or yeah. something. Yeah. Um, right. In the version I read, it was 57 pages, but um, the text is quite large. Yeah, I read a PDF version that I found quite easily by Googling it, and you can get a PDF version to read on your iPad. Yeah, and that was like 36 pages, or no, 32 pages long or something like that. But, you know, just I just thought I'd put that into perspective because some people say, oh, this is a precursor to cyberpunk, and I yeah, would I, say I, that I in a way. That, yeah. um, but it is you know, probably a decade before cyberpunk really took off in the 1980s, this oh, yeah. was going on. So uh, go for it, Scott, with your story okay. summary, because you read it twice. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so The Girl Who Was Plugged In is the name of the story, and um, it's it's told, I'm not sure who the narrator is, I'm not sure if we ever find out, um, but the narrator's addressing the reader directly. Um, Listen, zombie, believe me, very first line. Um it's about a uh, woman who has a lot of physical defects. I guess that's safe to say. Mm-hmm. And um, she tries to commit suicide. She fails. She ends up in a hospital. And the person, someone at the hospital offers her a job. Um, but he says, you're going to have to, you'll be dead to everybody that you know. But you'll get to see these people that you watch on television or whatever it's called in the story. I don't remember if it's called television or not. But Holographic something. Mm-hmm. So she's very excited about that, so she uh, she says yes. So what they do is they plug her into a um, Waldo system where she controls a... She doesn't use the word animatronic, but it's like a, a robot, 
version of a very pretty young girl, and she becomes this young girl through this Waldo system. And the um, the idea is that she she's actually been hired by people who want to do advertising through this super charismatic young girl. It's actually and, it's product placement and advertising, right? Because mm-hmm, their advertising sure. is illegal. Right. Right. Um, then she experiences life through this, and she, her life starts to blur between her real body and this other body, which she very much prefers. And uh, things happen, and it's uh, tragic at the end. <laughs> How's that? That's pretty good. All right. <laughs> um, I've got I've got a another one that I thought was pretty similar to that. This is uh, the summary from the television adaptation, which. Uh, when I watched it originally, before I'd read the story, it came out in 1998, I thought the show was terrible. <laughs> and um, now I realize it was very, very faithful to the um, story. <laughs> I'm like, okay, well, um, actually, they did a pretty faithful adaptation. But the problem is, uh, I'm not sure it would make a good adaptation of anything, because it it is very... Uh, weird. But anyway... No, I, I think the reason that it would be tough to do an adaptation in my opinion, is because it is extremely emotional yes, from this main character's viewpoint. There were two or three moments in there that I was just gutted completely. I mean, you know, just like a single line of text that I'm just like, oh my gosh, you know, that was so well put, but it, it just uh, emotionally really touched me. So here's the their their uh, Wikipedia description of the plot, which I think is is pretty close to what you were saying. A suicidal girl has come to realize that her existence is worthless because of her lack of beauty. She is given a second chance when her brain is used as an advanced remote control for an artificially grown, beautiful young bioorganic robot who will become a media sensation. The only question is, can she handle the, all the freedom she has never known? Um, mm-hmm. And that's kind of, I mean, that's a, kind of what it is about, I guess. Well, so why do you think it's got this f- weird framing new wave style device? Does that, because I, I, I... Yeah, and, and we, uh, you keep saying new wave. I guess that it probably is new wave, but I generally dislike new wave stuff. Me too. <laughs> um, and, and this, I found this much more accessible than I do normal, like, you know, J.G. Ballard and that kind of stuff. Mm, yeah. Um, though I can't say, I think J.G. Ballard is just someone I've attempted to read. I've never successfully read yeah, anything not. complete. But um, but this, like I said, you know, there, there's always in Tip Tree, there's always something there that that makes me want to keep going. Um, and uh, the same thing happened here at this story. Jesse, what do you see in the story that you would decide what you would call new wave? Well, it's in the right period, for sure, but um, uh, New Wave is like, it's very distinctive if you look at, like, physically, you go and find books from a certain period, you say, this isn't New Wave book, you can just tell from the cover, unless it's like a reprint of something. They sort of started changing the cover so that the, you know, the rocket ships disappear, and the uh, sort of trippy psychedelic covers come in and you know you have like people on the covers they'll be like sort of stretched out and weirded um and that sort of happens in the text as well so you know right from the very beginning we don't know what's going on we can't tell um there is a story somewhere in the background and it feels kind of like it's like they're sort of an ancient version of the singularity where 
you know, we're just sort of caught up in sort of a, I don't know, like a roller coaster that doesn't really mind if we don't know where we're going on this ride. Um, and so the, you know, the reader has to do a lot more work to tr- try and decode what is being encoded. And it, it's not always bad. I mean, there's a, I was reminded of a very, very good science fiction story um, by uh, Frederick Pohl called Day Million, which is incredibly short and uh, does a lot of the things that this one does. I think it's a little more clear, although it's, 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 it has this same sort of narration that's like, are we, it, it, at the beginning of this story, I don't know if we as the reader are the person the narrator is talking to, or if we are a person in the universe or in the past. I, like, I don't know who that person is talking to. Is it? Um, I, I thought it was a, it was a social comment from the very first line. It was like, you know, listen, zombie, believe me. Is, I mean, it says a lot. Just those four words. It does. Okay. If you if you assume that it is the reader, okay, then first of all, she's calling us zombies. Yeah. Right. As media, you know, people that just take in media. Yeah, that makes sense. And then, um, believe me, means that the truth is in question, which I think is one of our biggest problems today. Yeah. At least, you know, I've, I've said that before. <laughs> you know, we don't know who knows what the truth is. Oh my you God, know? Scott, you're, you're falling down the Jesse well. Well, that's, that's right. But you know, listen, zombie, believe me. So I'm pretty sure she's talking to people. And then us, she the says, readers. the next line is what I could tell you, you with your silly hands, leaking sweat on your growth stocks portfolio. Well, that's not me personally, Right. One in ten lousy hacks of AT&T on 20-point margin. And you think you're evil can evil? I mean, the, mm. suddenly we're, we know exactly what period this story was written, even though, even though it's set in the future, right? Yeah, she, she's... Yeah. Right, you know, if, uh, I you know, think if this goes to... on, you know, the only thing that people are going to be worried about is media and money. Yeah. And that's pretty much what she's saying. I think that's right. And Except... Go for it. At, at the very at the very end, someone goes time traveling, right? Because okay. it's kind of thrown in there. The sharp faced lad, he matures too. Yeah. Uh, so I think that is supposed to be the narrator, and that's what it says on the Wikipedia entry. Mm. Oh, don't just take what the Wikipedia entry has. No, to I, I, it. I'm not. I'm not. I, but I think that that I think that sounds right. And I think no, there's a there's a there's this great. No, I I don't. Okay. Sorry. There's this part in that just just so you know, I mean, just take it back to biblical stuff. People say, "Oh, who wrote Mark? And who's the person? Who's the young lad that runs away from the Garden of Gethsemane when they when Judas betrays Jesus and stuff?" Like that? Oh, that's Mark himself. He's put himself into his own story, and this happens time and time again. Like the author is put into the story as an unnamed or a, a, a previously or a, like someone who's introduced as sort of like a side character. You know, like why is that person there? You know, this is this has been done. You know, you see it in paintings as well. I've just been to a museum today and there's this person. It's like, well, who's that person looking at the camera? Or, you know, even though it's a painting, it's like, and it's like, oh, yeah, he's the person who paid for the painting. And there's this all these saints around there and there's Jesus here and all these other people coming around. And then there's this one character who's kind of unnamed who is, yeah, looking at the person who's being painted in the picture. There's time travel at the end. I mean, I think that's incredibly clear if you if if you can but jesse how can you say like you're saying oh it takes this really long time to work out what's going on or if there is a story here i thought it was really clear right from the very beginning i mean i must admit i did fall asleep after reading the first two pages one night and then i went back 
And I, I, so I guess I did read the first two pages or three pages twice because uh, I fell asleep and decided to go back and start again. Ground. You don't have a firm ground. There's no. But why do you need firm ground? I mean, that's not what you're starting off in the position of someone who doesn't have firm ground, who has no worth. You know that. Um, what, what was the name of the? Uh, was it P. P. Burke? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah. uh, that that character is cast adrift. That character has no worth, and all you're doing is starting off like feeling like that character, feeling like someone who lives in that world who point. is only ever is only ever looking on the outside and has just got all these marketing messages coming at them all the time, but aren't marketing messages. You know, it, it's that weird you know, uh, media dystopia, media controlled dystopia kind of world that they're living in. Um, and it's just, it's just kind of like a, uh, like a style picture poem kind of thing, you know, postmodern stream of consciousness kind of thing going on there. But it very, very clearly set up just a few pages in. There's like this whole section just going, oh, now this is what it is. And you will be doing this. Like, uh, like when did you get your new body? Or when did you get your body remade? It's like, oh, I've never had my re- body remade. And it's like, what? You know, they can't believe that someone is, like, cast adrift from society in that way. I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it's uh, well. It ties quite it clear into the the end. Ties it back to the beginning. So at the end, the the last lines are about the exact same thing as the first lines, right? He says, "Well, they're just going to find someone else." I don't be. When yeah. I say growth, I mean growth. Capital appreciation. You can stop sweating. There's a great future there. And yeah, but it's it's more it's less time travel. It's just cyclical nature of the rise and fall of media star stardom and media darlings no, and someone else is going to come in and go through that same journey it's just the same journey is going to happen it makes sense and especially if you look at it like a kind of a singularity story you, the whole idea behind a singularity is that you know you're not going to be able to uh explain very easily uh, maybe not at all to people what it's like past the singularity right so we do i think if we work hard at it, figure out what's going on in this story uh, by finishing it and sort of, you know, maybe reading it a second time or reading the Wikipedia entry and saying, aha, oh, that's what that means. And right. Because it is at the beginning, we're thrown into this world. It seems like uh, it's set in the seventies with the references to evil can evil and AT&T. Right. And those are contemporary references. And then at the end, we find out, yeah, there's this guy, the sharp-faced lad, who's going to um, go hang out in a temporal zone that's, you know, going to uh, anomalize him. And then he ends up uh, lying on a newspaper headlined, Nixon unveils phase two. And given the time when the story was written, I mean, what does that mean? Does it mean it's alternate history or does it mean... Uh, Right, yeah, but I, I don't. I don't see any reason to throw time travel in there. I think it's, it's a literary. <laughs> I didn't put it in there, my friend. It's in there. It's a loopy temporal anomalizer project. Yeah, true. He does. He doesn't understand it, but he's the experiment. Just like P. Burke is the experiment from the same company. They're both underground projects, but they're going different directions. And it's okay. Well, I didn't. I didn't see that was had anything to do with the main story. Like that's not what the book is about. That's I just think, more I think crazy stuff. I think it's the the whole point. It, I mean, if you think about why it's like that, I think it's so that it actually brings this horrible future into being. Right. 
The point that You're gonna the reason they're stopping and starting with zombies is because that world of humans just sitting back and being consumers, mm-hmm. that world is coming to an end. And that's what the narrator of the story is saying. But don't worry, there are investment opportunities. That's kind of how I took it. Well, I, th- I think it's it's not just coming to an end. It's actually just the beginning. Because w- what do people do in this future? The, right. Apparently they need cookers. Well, it's just not about them anymore. Yeah. Uh, right. It's, it, I mean, how close is this world to the world we're in? I don't think it's that close myself. I don't think advertising has been banned, but I did read a mm-hmm. lot about the Wikipedia entry on product placement, and it's been around for a long time, and it seems to be firmly entrenched now. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I think it resembles us closely. Okay. <laughs> it's one of the things that I was surprised at, you know, They're talking about uh, gods and and how, um, you know, we're, we're just media consumers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, to say that from 1973 is pretty remarkable, I think. You know, just saying that, well, if this goes on, this is what's going to happen. Well, you, you know. know, if you're on a train, you know, I'd be on a train in Miami. Everybody's looking at their phone. I mean, there, there's nobody that doesn't have one anymore. <laughs> and it's it's just like this is, yeah, <laughs> you know, like a permanent connection into your brain almost. Yeah. I think I read this great tweet. I think I yeah I retweeted this uh, back in July from someone on Twitter called Karl Marquis, who I have no idea who he is, but I retweeted him because I saw it retweeted. It says yearly reminder: unless you're over sixty, you weren't promised flying cars. You were promised an oppressive cyberpunk dystopia. Here you go. <laughs> and uh, and and I thought and I thought that was uh, I thought that was That's quite great. a funny thing. And that kind of came into my head when I was reading this. I don't see this book as a like specifically as a cyberpunk dystopia i think it's a kind of vision that would inform cyberpunk dystopia but i don't see i don't see this as a a, a dystopia book. i i do see it as a dystopia um i think i think there's elements of dystopia in here but i think it's more just a sort of like an abstracting out some some themes like you say the whole idea of like advertisements are forbidden the word advertising is a or commercial is a uh, you know, it's a swear word. You're not even allowed to say it. And it's very, you know, it's like, well, never say it. But and then everyone knows that it's going on anyway. Um, but I, I I think this is, you know, like it's it seems bad because there's this one person being manipulated and that's via that one person being manipulated, like the, the culture is being manipulated. But I don't see it as that dystopia ish not compared to like many other dystopias like if this is a dystopia everything is a dystopia and we are in a dystopia and i'd like to think that we can reserve the word dystopia for things which are actually you know more intrinsically uh evil and yeah i think we're sure. living in a dystopia or a lot of people are living in a dystopia if if they buy into the mainstream of the culture i mean no but like what does it, a dystopia means the opposite of a use, utopia does it Oh, oh, like, like, what? What's yeah. the working definition? Like, if, like, the thing is, it's a bad if, place. It's a bad place, but being like being uh, some people being in a bad place is very, very different from say, like, 1984, where the entire world is the bad place and the entire world is oppressed, and there's literally no way out of it because if there was a way out of it, it wouldn't be dystopia. You know. Well, the thing though is, if you look closely at 1984, it's actually more of a dystopia for. For the outer party than it is for the uh, the proles, right? Despite all of that, despite all of that, there is no way out for anybody in that system. There is no way out of that system. 
And that's the only way that utopias can exist. And that's the only way that dystopias can exist. Because if there is a way out of a utopia, if there's something outside of a utopia that people can get to, it's not a utopia. And if there's something outside of a dystopia that people can get to, it's not a dystopia. And I think this is, I think that's one thing uh, that I've kind of come to realize. I would say if you can escape from North Korea, you're going to escape from a dystopia. Yes. But this, what we're reading in this story here, is not an isolated community. It's a world culture. It's a world community. Yeah, they, go, they go all over the world, and it's like this all over the world. And what we have now all over the world is sort of like the internet and like the you know, global capitalism has put in place a system where you can be, like as, put it this way, if you've got enough money, you can get the same access to um, goods and services and uh, you know, political influence and all those kind of things. It's 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 stratified, but it's not stratified. Uh, it, it's kind of what am I trying to say? There's there's anywhere that you are, you can be in it or out of it. Of course, you could say, oh, the world is a dystopia for poor people. But yes, of course it is. <laughs> you know, but what I'm saying is that this book, this this story. Sorry, it's not really a book, is it? There's this uh, novella, this story that we're reading here doesn't actually present the world is something which is like this, this advertising, it never presents it as something which is unavoidable for everybody. It's like, there are a lot of people who are zombies. There are a lot of people who buy into it, but if you don't buy into it, it, it's never said, it's never said, unlike something like, uh, um, unlike something, uh, like 1984, all these other dystopias, there is, it's not like, oh, well, the people, lots of people sit at home and look at the, the hollow screens, but many people don't. And for those people who don't, well, good on them. They're probably going off and writing novels or they're probably going off or reading books. You know, there is not like in 1984 where you have to watch the, the view screen in the morning and you have to do the exercises every morning and you have to be part of the system and you have to consume. Like it's it's like part of the rules of society that you have to consume this. Whereas this book, it's like, yeah, OK, people do. And there is advertising. Yeah, it's softer. It's, it's it's much softer and I, I, so if something is an opt-in I, I can't see that it's a dystopia if it's opt-in whereas something like wool um if you've read did you read wool i can't no. remember if you did that no, uh, I have. okay uh, okay but that is that you could say is a dystopia because there is no way out you know people are trapped in this environment it's you know this one environment and people are trapped into it and the story is about people trying to get out of that environment so i'd say yeah that is a dystopia you know um whereas if it's if it's a story like this, where it's not really about people trying to get out of that system, people might be stuck in it. But, you know, it, it seems very easy to not be part of the system is just don't watch TV. And that's it. You know, just don't watch the daytime soaps. Um, Except much yeah. like in Wool, where part of the dystopian feeling of it is the lack of truth. You don't actually know what the truth is because there's a certain number of people that control the information. There are yeah. those six people in the tower at GTX that clearly yeah. have a lot of power because they're making decisions about the aesthetics of the entire country. You know, making rules about advertising sounds like a good thing until you realize what that means. It means that they have control of the environment. So yeah. I don't know. But that happens That happens now in our world. You know, there are a few people, some media people like a Rupert Murdoch here and a person there and a person there who who do control those policies already, you know. And the government. Yeah, maybe. I don't think the government <laughs> controls that much. Or let me put it in the United States from from the outside looking in. I don't think the government is controlling that because like there's there just doesn't seem to be that much control over anything by the government. It seems to be all inside interests and business interests and other things like that. I don't see that the, the government but, has that much control. 
the government controls the business interests. I've been reading this um, biography of Anonymous. <laughs> yeah. Really? So yeah, it's really great. Uh, for int- for instance, when uh, WikiLeaks happened, the government asked Amazon, which provides most of the web space in the country, PayPal, and Mastercard to stop yeah. payments options to WikiLeaks. And so, yeah. if there weren't people with that had money to own their own server space and their own internet little tiny worlds, yeah, you know, it could have been completely shut down. As it was, it was almost entirely shut down. So, yeah. but the only reason why Mastercard and Visa and those places went to that is because Mastercard and Visa needed favors from the uh, United States government to be able to keep working in Russia, and Russia is a massive business, and that that was part of the the scandal of that WikiLeaks scandal was because. Mastercard and Visa want to keep working in Russia. They needed political pressure from America to keep working in Russia. So when the United States was like, well, you don't take WikiLeaks donations and we'll do this stuff for you in Russia. And that actually came out with later WikiLeaks. That actually was part of the WikiLeaks scandal. That that was one of the leaks that came out, you know. So I do understand how it goes both ways. But Mm -hmm. like like in the end, um, uh, America... Is, is was literally doing what Mastercard and Visa were paying them to do, and that was, you know, in the in the end, them not processing payments for WikiLeaks is, was kind of just part of that payment in a way. So uh, I, I I understand what you're saying. It does go both ways, but like the idea that there's six people in a tower somewhere controlling the tastes of America. You know, who is it? Is it Johnny Ive and Steve Jobs saying, well, this is what we're going to do? I mean, <laughs> is it hmm. is it Jeff Bezos? Is it Sergey Brin and what is his name? Uh, the guys at Google, you know, these people do have massive amounts of power, you know, and it it is just maybe not just six people. But it, I think there is. I mean, I don't want to become come off as a conspiracy theory because I don't see this as a dystopia kind of situation because I think sure. it is. I think it is quite easy to step outside of that, but I do think massive swathes of public discourse and other things can be influenced just by a very small handful of people. Um, Right, and the thing about this story is that even if that's a true piece of it, regardless, that's not what the story is really about. The story is about this one person and this relationship. And Scott, you were saying that there were parts that kind of gutted you. Mm-hmm. Can we talk yeah. about some of the emotional part of the story? Sure. Are so, you want me to tell you one of the moments? Well, or? yeah, tell us one of them. Okay, there, there's a line early on um, when she she falls. She's she's watching this hollow screen, and then suddenly she she falls, and the paramedics arrive and everything. And you don't know for sure exactly what happened, but then um, it's revealed just slightly later that it was a suicide attempt. And there's a line, and the line says, again, nothing happens for a while except that her eyes leak a little from the understandable disappointment of finding herself still alive. Yeah. Uh, when I read that line, I was really gutted by it. And um, it's interesting in the light of, you know, what happened with uh, Alice Sheldon later, too, the author. Mm-hmm. But, um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a tough line, and that was an emotional connection that I made with the, uh, the main character. So do you think that this opportunity that they give her, she interprets it as hope as work? Well, she interprets as... it as, as worthwhile and reason to live. Um, you know, just, and, and the thing that got her that was this, 
I get to meet these three people, these godlings that they keep, you know, that that's what the the narrator keeps calling them. Um, these media stars that she is just wrapped by. Um, and every, you know, in, in the thing, when she was watching it, she was totally wrapped by it. And then it was when the show ended and these people left that she lost her reason to live. She didn't want to live anymore. But when she was watching that, she was fine. Yeah. So that's that's even sadder. Yeah, it is. It's extremely sad. And then, um, now that's what the guy offers her that makes her light up. And she says, oh yeah, I wanted, I want to live now. That reminds me of, um, in, uh, Fahrenheit 451 with the, um, what is it, the wife of the main character? I can't remember the main character's name now, but she is just totally so much into the her families, her friends, isn't it, as they call them, who are there in the, on the screens around her. And that's where right. she lives a life, and that's where she finds complete she happiness. That that being wall, and then her life. Yeah. Yeah, she gets and that that's everything. Wall. Yeah, yeah. Right. And, uh, and in the end, when she leaves, he's just like, well, I don't care about you because I've got my family over here and what she called them family or friends i think, I think she calls anyway. them the family yeah yeah the family yeah. i've got my family and that's that's kind of what this story brought back to mind for me um and, it, and it's good because she, there's so many it's so many of these things in it, this book it oh, really is the body is the fourth wall right she's taken out of her own body and put into that world so that it's she's a part of the show right yeah, and she didn't even understand at that point that that's what was going to happen. She was just all for meeting these people. Yeah, because um, there's this there's a weird tax tax dodge marriage kind of thing, like the old guy who's eighty or something like that, and he's just like, oh yeah, yeah I'm gonna I'm gonna do this, and uh, of course I'll marry you. But it's part of the no show other reason. too, though, right? Yeah, it's all part. No, I don't. I don't that was just to get. I think. I think that her marrying that guy was. But wasn't I think. Part of I think. Show, was it? I think there's more than one show going on. So, uh, one of the things that the the narrator does is he keeps. You know, he, he he's full of contempt. I I think it's a he, and he's full of contempt for everything, including the the person he's talking to. But he says stuff like, uh, "It doesn't matter if it doesn't fit the plot. We'll just, you know, it's for stupid people." And then uh, it so there's two shows going on. There's a soap opera uh, kind of show. I don't think it actually says soap opera, but that's what I I took from it. And then there's the show around that. And there's a couple of references that made me think this. So one of them is Gene Harlow. That's a quick mention of Gene Harlow relatively early in the story. And I don't know if you guys know who Jean Harlow was, but she was like a huge, huge star in the 1930s and 40s. You guys familiar with her? She was like nope. called the blonde bombshell. She she's a very beautiful, attractive uh, movie star with almost white hair. Um, and she was in tons of movies with, uh, you know, all the Hollywood movie stars. And uh, she had a tragic death very young I think she was 26 um, and she was outside of her you know movie roles she had the typical Hollywood movie star sort of relationship to the people you know they'd have pinups of her she'd be in the newspaper whatever she's you know who she's dating all that stuff would be plastered everywhere into the media so there was like two shows going on one is Jean Harlow, the actress in that movie, and then is one Jean Harlow, the person in her life. And I think in 
in this story, we're getting that as well because her lifestyle as as Delphi is actually the whole of the show, right? The fact that Delphi is going out and you know going to a restaurant, uh, she's wearing her Prada bag and I don't know uh, Jimmy Choo shoes and carrying a iPhone six or whatever it is, right? All of those things are actually the real show. And the fact that she's also an actress on a on a television show is part of it as well. Yeah, I think I think that's what we get in our in our modern world as well. You see the actors in in movies, but actually their story, the story of um of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie mm-hmm. and uh Jennifer Aniston and all that kind of stuff before. It's like the meta story is the story that the people actually care about and their and their movies are just reminders why they're famous or reminders yeah. why we're following those people along. Yeah. But so uh, I, I understand I understand what you're saying. There's two shows, but I think the original show of her going over to Europe and being seen and hanging out with all the good people and marrying this guy, that was just to kind of like introduce it to the scene. That was like a casting kind of yeah. trip. You know, it was like an right. exploratory right. casting trip. I don't think that was specifically a TV show. It was just there, she just turned the, up on all, all the, the TV all the gossips. It's all yeah, but, a TV show. So that was a TV show. It's just that that was not a highly rated show, right? That was not the one that most people are looking at. It's kind no, of I think, she was I in a B think, movie and then she gets... No, I don't think it, that's right. I think, I think she went over and got famous for doing stuff. She got famous for hanging out with the right people and being seen in the right places and wearing the right things and going to the right parties and all that kind of stuff. And from that, then she went down to South, Afri- uh, South America to, uh, was it Chile or Ecuador or something like that? Um, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and uh, then there, there she got and a role. There, yeah. and she goes, "Oh, what am I doing here?" It's like, "Oh, now you're on TV." And I think that was a transition. She just thought she was actually just going to be doing the parties, but it turns out that she actually had to do like real, like the real soap operas. And why they're called soap operas because they were sponsored by soap companies to make you buy the soap. You know, they're not and that, sponsored though. That's the thing, right? Yes, it's, is you can't say that. They're just shows, and they happen to love soap. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that that's the point. That's what we're getting. But she didn't realize that she was actually having to. She she thought she was just going to do the party stuff. She thought she was just going to do the uh, do the Brad Pitt Angelina Jolie circuit of parties. But forget. And I think when she actually had to suddenly like, oh no, you actually have to make you to to stick around. You've actually got to be on the TV shows as well. I think that was a a transition in the story from from what she thought was reality, even for her robot self. You know. Um, what she thought was going to be reality, and then it transitioned over into this advertising gig, this soap opera advertising gig, which, uh, um, which suddenly the the reality or what she thought was a reality of party lifestyle was actually sort of shown up to be something else. You know, it's sort of like yeah, but we've got to keep funding that somehow. We've got to actually make it slightly more explicit. You know, we can't keep funding you from the the ninety year old tax, tax marriages tax dodge thing. It's a strange thing. Mm-hmm. Another uh, reference uh, allusion in this story that uh, I think uh, Tam was referencing, saying, "What what does this mean?" Uh, there's a book mentioned called Green Mansions, also a movie. I don't I don't know if it, the movie starred uh, Gene Harlow, but <laughs> um, Rima, the the bird girl. Do you guys remember that from the story? Oh, the bird girl. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's who Paul is in love with. Yeah, so well, that's oh, okay. He's treating yeah. her like uh, a bird girl uh, from this story called Green Mansions. You know, he falls in love with with 
what he thinks is uh, just a regular girl actress, right? Turns out that he's in love with a girl actress who's in a fake body, right? Um, and that's where the plot all goes. But but the reference to Rima, I, I'd heard of Green Mansions, but I, I looked it up. And Audrey Hepburn. Oh, I think you're right, and that's probably a um, a good ad- adaptation because uh, she is kind of like a bird girl. Yeah, 1959 movie adaptation starring Audrey Hep- Hepburn. Um, so in the story, Green Mansions, there's some uh, fallen revolutionary who goes to uh, S- South America and discovers in a n- n- near a native village that there's a sort of a uh, outcast girl in the forest and the natives all hate her because she's got evil magic or something and he falls in love with her even though she can't communicate with him she speaks a bird language and is able to communicate with the birds <laughs> but um, she's got this huge backstory and in the end of the story uh, the natives chase her up a tree and burn her and Yay. that's the end of the story. <laughs> Very dystopian sort of story. Um, I say tragic, not dystopian. <laughs> <laughs> yes, okay, tragic, yes. Uh, a dystopia is, is a, a tragedy of one. <laughs> a tragedy is a dystopia of one, maybe. Um, <laughs> that sounds right. Okay, so... It's Jesse, like, Jesse, your brain is a dystopia for you. Let me do it. No, my <laughs> brain's good. <laughs> it's the rest of the world that's screwed up. Um, so I think I think what's cool about this story is that uh, if if you were reading this in 1973, this would be a lot more prominent in your mind, um, and those illusions would really resonate. I think, like evil Knievel. Uh I think that he is the perfect symbol of that period, don't you think? Sort of useless, just for. You know, I mean, he's got advertisements all over his motorcycle. Like that's the whole idea is for him to just draw attention. Yeah, I guess. Um, but not so isn't Swift isn't it both true. the old guy and Paul that make the connection to Rima? Because the older yes. man had he's like a what what do you call a person who studies birds? <laughs> yes, he he's a he he is there. He goes on trips. He goes on trips to find birds. So yes, I guess that is another another thing to, to Green Mansions. I didn't pick it up because I, I guess I heard of Green Mansions, but I've n- never seen it that I know of. Mm-hmm. Um, no, and yeah. I haven't read it either. And apparently, it's it's you know quasi fantasy, given the that she's talking to birds. Um, but it's it's a tragedy, and I, I think though that resonates here. I mean, this is quite a tragedy itself. Um, but what I think is funny is that the story that's being illustrated for the potential investor in 1973, the reader, right, is, or something very close to the reader, is is this horrible tragedy where a girl makes a ton of money for a corporation and then uh, things go badly. But it's okay because there's lots, plenty more where she came from and somebody even takes over her body. But yep. what, do, what do we make of the um, the body working without the girl? When the wall starts moving on its own and saying and dreaming and talking in its sleep. I don't know. I, I just felt that that was a design by the people who designed it to try to make her seem real when she's not connected. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I thought I thought that was I thought that was where the story was going to go, but then when it kind of happened and he he was like, "Oh, you said my name in your sleep." I was like, "Did did she really like where where are we getting that end of the story from?" Because I understand where the, the the most of the story comes from because we see it from the point of view of the person who is at that end, you know, this technician who is Yeah, uh, yeah. and there, there, there was a and he was very proud of how human it was and everything. You know, yeah, he was. Like, they, they were, were the always talking one. about how well designed it was. Yeah, and he was like, he was the only one who loved her, not because, or no, he was the only one who lived P, but loved P. Burke, but not because she was worth anything as a, a human being, even though she was ugly. It wasn't like, oh, he saw through her real beauty. It's like, no, he loved her because she was the best system. It was the best right. expression she, of the she system. Was, she was part of this beautiful system, right? Yeah. So exactly. when, when Paul is saying, oh, she said my name or she was saying something in the sleep, I was like, well, how do they know that? Isn't that disconnected or is it, is it something that this other guy is, is throwing out there to make it, like you say, like Scott says, is it, it, was, it, was it being controlled from that end to make it seem I think, that it I, wasn't being controlled fact, from that end? And there, wasn't there a part in the story, well, I'm pretty sure that there was, where, I mean, her longing to be Delphi was so intense that she wanted to just kill herself and go into Delphi. <laughs> And yeah. uh, yes, the, the narrator like, said, that's impossible. That's not going to be possible. Right. It's not yeah. going well, to happen. I, I thought it was like she, there's a brain in, inside that skull. It's just, it's sort of a, it's plastic and it's not really, you know, it, it, there's no personality. And just the fact that she had had this girl riding, you know, or controlling her like a puppet for so long, it was sort of creating those pathways that would be, you know, if she had maybe done it for 20 years, that it, she would have been sort of copied in there. That's what I was thinking. But that's not what this. That's not where the story goes. I think that was just one of those little well, red herrings that's thrown in. Well, there. at the end, you know, she's being cut off from her her puppet or her Waldo, and it's 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 responding to her, uh, responding to her boyfriend. Right? It's not. It's not. Um, it's not like. The personality is 100% there. She's being disconnected, but it, it felt to me like it almost worked. Yeah, I think that's what just part of the tragic Jenny? nature. What do you think, Jenny? Well, I don't know. I was trying to remember the, the timeline of things. Was this before they figured out that P. Burke had sores because she was and she wasn't eating because she was so absorbed into the life? Yeah, and but, she was also maybe trying to kill herself. Because yeah. I thought perhaps it had something to do with how she had given up so much of herself that it was even when she was supposed to be taking care of herself and sleeping and eating that her mind was still absorbed with being this other person. So I kind of thought that maybe it wasn't just the place she plugged in physically that had an impact on Delphi, but maybe it was also that she was plugged in emotionally. I mean, I'm not sure. I think that that's right. I mean... It's curious if this was a novel. I think we would have more of that. I started to think about a Heinlein novel called, uh, I guess that was published around the same time, called um, "I Will Fear No Evil," in which a old man has his brain uh, taken out of his old rotting body after a car accident or something. No, uh, his his secretary gets in a car accident, and just happens to damage only her brain, and so they take her brain out and put his brain into it. Um, and now this old man is a young secretary. 
<laughs> and eventually, <laughs> in this, yeah, it's it's one of those Heinlein stories where you know he has lustful lustful feelings for a young woman, but because he's an old man, it's okay. He's, those lustful feelings are just grandfatherly or something. And then eventually, he <laughs> is the, he is the young woman, um, and so those lustful feelings uh, are strange. So, in the end of the story, he is a uh, heterosexual female, even though he's. He's an old man, right? His old man brain he becomes a heterosexual female, even though he was a heterosexual man before. And right, and P. Burke, she is not a person plugged into wires with pituitary dystrophy. She thinks that she is this beautiful, attractive person, and that's what makes the end so devastating. Mm-hmm. And I also would think was thinking about you know the way she's submerged all this time and walking around in a you know beautiful world that's outside of her. It also made me think of the Matrix. Um, that movie has some serious problems, but I was thinking like if this is the start of the technology, isn't the end point everybody has a new body? Because um, there's another story that's uh, I, I think it's explicitly alluded to it's called the beautiful people um it's a public domain story by the way and that one is about every a world in which everybody it was turned into an episode of the twilight zone or or the outer limits everybody is um when they turn like 15 or 16 they have the option of well they don't really have the option they're basically forced to have surgery to make them beautiful uh the uglies series i think Uglies uh, Westerfields. Yeah, Westerfields. Yeah, that's sort of following up on the same idea. Um, mm-hmm. But it, if if everybody gets to have their own vat-grown avatar, um, wouldn't everybody say, "Oh, you know, my hair's not the right color. Or my I, I'd like to be taller." What's yeah. funny is is there's sort of a counter to that in in the television show that she's on or whatever it's called, you know, drama she's on. Um, there's somebody who is paraplegic. And I was thinking, mm-hmm. well, that's, that's something usually people want to fix. Right. Yeah. Um, I think, I think the idea that if everyone could be beautiful, if it was very easy to make everyone beautiful, everyone would just be as beautiful as possible. Right. Is so naive and it's not played out. Like you, anyone who has ever been on any computer system and you, uh, you say, okay, here is a here is an avatar making. Here's your Wii person. Here is your right. uh, as you know, Wii Wii is probably the 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 meeples on the Wii thing is probably different because you don't normally try and make them look like you because then that's going to be you in the game. But like in all of these Second Lives and all of these um, World of Warcraft. Uh, War, Warcraft, that's the game, World of Warcraft, all those kind of things. People don't choose to be as beautiful as possible. Every single person chooses to be as unique as possible. You know, everybody, that's possible. That is the business model for things like Team Fortress on, you know, on these computer games is that everyone looks the same and everyone could be the same. But you pay money for a hat and you pay money to make yourself look unique. And if looking unique impinges on beauty, that is what people will always pick out. People will always pick unique over beautiful and well, that's that's the way that's yeah. the way it seems to work, you know. The, if you can control beauty, your own beauty, is you know also in the eye of the beholder sort of thing. So one of the things is 
you know, there was a, I was listening to a podcast recently and the second smartest man in the world was saying how he deliberately gave himself scars because he thought scars were going to attract women. Well, scars are what kids, the boys who like, you know, Rambo, <laughs> they think scars are cool, right? But they're not, you know, they're not inherently beautiful, right? They are mm. functionally beautiful. Yeah, that's fascinating. So if you could alter your bodies to that level, you'd be walking down the street and you'd be seeing all manner of things, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People with wings, uh, people with... Transhumanism, uh, right? You know, yeah. yeah, like uh, cat faces. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so exactly. Let's get... I want to get back to this book because we haven't actually said what we thought of the book. We've said about, like Scott said, mm -hmm. about how what it makes him... Like there were some very moving lines and stuff like that. Did anyone actually enjoy this book or like the book oh. or not like the book? Oh, I... I love this story. It's my favorite from the whole collection. Her Smoke Grows Up Forever. I've read the entire thing. Hmm. Yeah. And it's the one I think I connected with the most. Um, so I'm a huge fan. I, from, oh, carry on. Who was up breathing in to start there? Oh, that was me. I was just saying, yeah, yeah I, I liked it as well. I, I think this is, you know, Jesse mentioned that if it was novel length, whatever, I think, I don't think it could be novel length. I think this is the value of what short mm -hmm. fiction and science fiction genuinely is, is the ability to experiment with the style and things. Um, but I, I, I find James Tiptree and this story is a, a really good example as one of those writers. that's not like any other people. Um, and uh, I think it shines. I, I really enjoyed it. Mm. Uh, yeah, I liked it too. I mean, I, I, I think it's, it's not, it doesn't. It would have been better to read it in 1973 because of the evil Knievel and the Nixon and all that stuff. It it feels more like an artifact than it should. But I guess that's true of a lot of science fiction. Um, it's just uh, I don't think the 70s were cool enough. For, you know, like, um, but but on the other hand, I I really think it's a it's very well written, even though it is so hard to understand. And I think the reason it's hard to understand is because it's done in this uh, post-singularity style of, of you know, hey you, daddy-o sort of thing. You know, it's like a, it's it's got its own patois that doesn't um, doesn't ex, you know spoon feed it to you, I guess. Mm. Well, I I gotta have to be the dissenting voice here. I didn't really enjoy it very much at all, um, and I think that's partly because. You say, oh, it's the strength of science, uh, the strength of short fiction. Like, if it was a novel, it would be this. But the strength of short fiction is that you can play around with these styles. I just generally don't like short fiction very much. You know, it's not the form that I'm comfortable with. Like, every time I was reading a line here, and it was just saying, and then they did this, and then they did this, and then they did this. It's not like I want each one of those one sentences to be a paragraph, but, like, all the time I, I felt like I was being shortchanged out of a more interesting story. And... The stylistically with the writing, I it, it can this writing can be interesting. I think it, like like Jesse said, it probably could have been interesting back more interesting if it's the first time you've read this kind of style. Um, but it felt like I was getting two two things. Like I was getting a, a novel length story or something which could have been longer or could have been better told if it was you know more time was being taken. But then. At the same time, it was. It, I, I felt like I was being shortchanged out of something that could have been more interesting. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, yeah. It however, makes sense. however, 
<laughs> I, I think I think the main reason why I didn't enjoy this is because recently I read some two novels um, by Rudy Rucker, one called Software and one called Wetware, and it was very much very very similar ideas to this. You know, the world was different, but it's it's about you know quite a, a, some large chunks of those two books are about people with a brain in one place controlling a robot body in another place, um, and. And it, it, and the worst thing is, I say the worst thing. I think the reason why I didn't like it is because he in that those novels is is has got kind of almost the same freedom of language. Not done as well as this book, but done um, 15 years later than this book. Mm. And it, it kind of annoyed me that that was said. Oh, these are great cyberpunk books, and it's really great. And I think is it Cory Doctorow was really bigging up the mm-hmm. you know the the software. Um, series of novels by Rudy Rucker and I was, and after reading this I was just like well was Rudy Rucker just ripping this book off and I think it's because I've read those other novels it kind of spoiled me for this if I'd have come into this book without having read those books recently or earlier this year I think I would have enjoyed this a lot more but it felt like it felt like it could have been like in a way yeah I was just wanting more you know the the free styling the the style of the writing that kind of freedom of the writing and just going wherever they want and just going well I'm going to chuck out good storytelling I'm going to cut chuck out characterization and just use shortcuts and just use what was the word that you said Jesse that the, the patois or something the oh. the the uh, all, all of that kind of um futuristic patois yeah like I say, I just I'd say because I, I just read a book like that. This kind of like I say, it kind of annoyed me that it it well, was that's part more of, what of that. Punk is right. I mean, it's yeah, and that's romantic. I don't like it's cyberpunk stuff. I just don't like cyberpunk. I I don't like the disregard for English language coupled with um, a disregard for storytelling. You know, like some of the like I really like the language in this book, but. I don't like storytelling in that language. Does that make sense? Um, and, and I found that with Rudy Rucker and I found it with other cyberpunk that I've tried to read, um, which, which I guess it's the punk in the cyberpunk. I like the cyber stuff mm. and I like the writing, but combining that kind of writing style and disregard for character and story um, together with the ideas of cyberpunk uh, just doesn't just doesn't do it for me at all. So... There is, there is stuff in this book that I like, but uh, in this story that I like, but I, I just I think cyberpunk has kind of been spoiled for me by other people who've done it worse. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I, I so to... if you've got any defense for it, I would I, I do like to hear the like the whole you say oh it's a you know it's a time travel book it's not a time travel book it's just like someone says oh and we'll I'll just undercut all of this and just say oh it's time travel all along you know but we, that time travel doesn't add anything it doesn't take anything away it's just it kind of just flops there on the page and it's just like, oh yeah, I just wanted to tie it back to the beginning, you know, and it didn't have to be like that, if you know what I mean. Like, I, 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 if it was, it, it doesn't, like I say so much of this doesn't add to it. The, the styling of the language doesn't, for me, add anything to the story. It just takes me out of the story. Like every time, like you say, Jesse, every time there's a bit of bad grammar and you're like, oh, like that, it's just like, of course I think I got all of the story or maybe, maybe I didn't get all of the story. I only read it once, but, I feel like I, I know it, it could, it could have been a, it could have been a classic story, and in the end, it was just like, well, it's just a, what do you say, like a disappointing new wave science, uh, cyber early cyberpunk stuff. You know, I um, I was, I was, well, this is directly related to Luke, so um, 
I was listening to a podcast of the KCRW bookworm, Michael Silverblatt, talking to Francine Prose about her newest book. But then they got into talking about her an older book she wrote called Reading Like a Writer. And I was reminded of this quote, so I just went back and found it. Reading quickly for plot, for ideas, even for the psychological truth that a story reveals, can be a hindrance when the crucial revelations are in the spaces between words in what has been left out. And I guess I kind of feel like the reason that Tiptree's stories demand multiple readings is because I think in the end, they're not actually just about what's going on. They're about the themes that Alice Sheldon, Tiptree, whoever was interested in and pointing out some of the issues. I mean, I don't think it's about what's happening in this story at all. And that's why the only things I've marked are about the emotions. Like even the characters in the story, they're focusing on how we can use this creature we've created to do advertising for us and how we can use this person that doesn't matter anyway, because clearly she was going to take her own life and she's ugly. You know, we're just going to use these people because we can, but we have this other end in mind, but they didn't expect there to be love involved. And so that throws everything off. And I love how Tiptree describes love. It hasn't occurred to anyone that they're dealing with the real hairy thing whose shadow is blasting out of every hollow show on earth. Mm. And then it's like love question mark. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the, the, the narrator, his cynicism seems to fall away sometimes, mm-hmm. you know, and that's us reading past it, I guess. And I think that that's why I'm glad new wave has died myself. Um, there's a great quote from Asimov here. Uh, he says, um, I hope that when New Wave has deposited its froth and receded, the vast and solid shore of science fiction will appear once more. Um, now, the thing is, is he actually thinks, uh, quote, on the whole, the New Wave was a good thing because it it brought non-SF people into uh, SF, I guess. And it it had more women reading and writing science fiction. And that's a good thing he's saying. Uh, but to me, I mean, I think there's still some of this, it, it's almost like the literary version of science fiction. You have to read past it because honestly it, to me, it's all idea SF. And some of those ideas are about emotions and about, I mean, maybe that's the most important part is how, how the technology or, science, uh, how the universe works, relates to us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's all really good. But uh, I think if you read a lot of this new wave SF, the, the, the takeaway is that it feels more stylistic than it is full of content. I think this story is good because it has, I don't think the content's massively huge because it's not even that original. You, you know, Luke's is complaining about how, you know, unoriginal these later cyberpunk novels are. I, I think that that's right. But no, I'm not talking about the originality. I'm talking about like, like not even the originality of the ideas or the themes or the stories or something. I'm just talking about like what Rudy Rucker was doing in like 1989 or whenever he wrote um, Wetware or whatever the, the next book was. It doesn't feel like anything new in that book compared to this book. Does that make sense? Yeah. I like. I'm not saying that either of them are bad stories or anything. I'm just saying that, like, once it 
for me, this feels this feels so similar to that. It's like it spoiled me. That book has spoiled me for this one. It's because you were reading uh, it in the wrong order. <laughs> yes, like I say, but you can't always go. You don't always know what is the first example That's of right. like. That's right. Okay, what is the first cyberpunk book? And people say, oh, it's this. Or what is the first cyberpunk movie? Oh, you got to go back to this one. You know, you can see these timelines of cyberpunk, but uh, and you know, you can, you can pick out some good versions of that or bad versions. Um, and you can, you know, but it's not always the first thing of a new genre is any good. It can just be new. It can just be that's where the ideas come from. So and then you'll find the first new one. That I would suggest that everybody who had difficulty with this story in any way and wants a more traditional sort of SF style writing take on it. There's a story by Anne McCaffrey. Uh, I don't recommend you read all of Anne McCaffrey, but I recommend everybody read this short story called The Ship Who Sang. It was turned into a novel of the same name uh, with a collection of subsequent stories, but you really just get the main idea in the first story. It's about a person who's born with some sort of genetic defect or developmental defect. Their body's broken, uh, or her body's broken, but her her mind is strong and healthy and full of love. And they take her out of uh, her body or they package her body inside a spaceship and she falls in love with her crew. And it's, yeah. it's very, you know, straight ahead, easy to read science fiction with all the emotional impact that you would get in a story like this. Maybe, maybe not exactly Jesse, the same. Jesse, I think you're misunderstanding what I'm saying. I don't need easy to read. Like, I didn't find this story hard to read. Like, I didn't find it a challenge. You know, I did. There was there. there, It's not difficult. You know, that's not the problem. I'm not talking about difficulty. I'm not talking about I want standard stuff or not standard stuff. I'm saying that stylistically that like what what was going on here? Like uh, Jenny said that, oh, there's it's what's not included. It's what's between the words. uh, And I understand that view. But. It, for me, it's not just between the words. It's like, well, do I need to clear out all of these other words or do I need to separate all of this other stuff from the story first and then kind of put those out of my mind and then it's between them? Or is the stuff that's between the words, is it like, okay, the story isn't being told properly to this style and do I need to fill in more story? No, do you understand? It's like, it's, it's the, like I say, it's the disregard for the English or it's the style thing that I don't think adds anything to this story. But I want you guys to explain why telling the story in this style adds to this story, or why telling the story in this, in this style adds to the emotional impact, because to me, it doesn't. It's a, it's, a, it's a distancing device from the emotional content of the story. And if that's by design, that's fine. But I, don't, I don't in, didn't enjoy that design. You know, I'd rather like bypass the overblown stylistic choices that were made with the writing and get to the story or tell a story that fits this, uh, you know, fits the style better for me. Again, it's a personal thing. I don't so want, that, I don't want easier books to read. I want books done like I this, but better. I wasn't trying to say it's an easier book to read. I'm saying it's straightforward. It doesn't, I don't want straightforward. Who wants straightforward? I don't the want only, straightforward. Me. The, the only thing that I got out of the style the style itself was again that that first line and the last line, where the uh, the narrator's directly addressing the reader, and I, I got some impact out of that. Um, you know, and again, you know, you know, the the narrator addresses the reader off and on throughout the story. Um, yes, but I, d- again, I think I that didn't... there was a point to that. I think I think there was a point to it. Um, you know, whether you. 
that point was effective or not is definitely under debate, but I, it was effective for me. Okay. I understand the first and last. I did like the direct address. I, do, I really enjoy stories with that direct address. I think Peter Watts does it very, very well in his books. He'll just go, right, let me tell you about this. And it's just the, the, the author telling you about something cool and then goes, and this fits into the story like this, and then just jumps back to the story. But he, he makes info dumping, like, what, what's it? He kind of flags up info dumping. It's like, right, let's do some info dumping. Here, I'm going to tell you something in a really cool way, really, like, I'm going to tell you something about, about something cool in a cool way. And it fits in with the story better than many other people who go, ah, and then these two people had a conversation and one person says, hey, do you know about this new technology? No, I don't. Well, let me tell you about the new, you know, yeah. do you understand there's, there's different ways? How many variations of that have we oh, read? Yeah, all of them. Right. As you know, Jim, we're <laughs> on this planet. The other kind of thing is just like, no. Like, so, so I like direct address in fiction um, and it can work in this book, but then when it just goes, when it just suddenly goes, and now they're spending every day together and you're like, really? You're just going to like skip over the whole of the development of the relationship and just say now they're spending every day together? Like, let me let me read this. This is from the 1966 uh, story Day Million. It's the opening lines uh, by Frederick Pohl. On this day, I want to tell you about which we will which will be about 10,000 years from now. There were a boy, a girl and a love story. Now, although I haven't said much so far, none of it is true. The boy was not what you and I would normally think of as a boy, because he was 187 years old. Nor was the girl a girl, for other reasons. And the love story did not entail the sublimation of the urge to rape and the concurrent postponement of the instinct to submit, which we at present understand in such matters. (laughs) You won't care much for this story if you don't grasp these facts at once. If, however, you will make the effort, you'll likely find it enough jam-packed, chock-full, and tip-top crammed with laughter, tears, and poignant sentiment, which may or may not be worthwhile. The girl, uh, the reason the girl was, the reason that the girl was not a girl was that she was a boy. And and it's like, that's such clear writing doing the exact same job. That's what I like. Uh, That's why I think Day Million is a better story, even though it's much less emotionally impactful. um, And it's even shorter. I would be bored to tears reading that story. I totally, I understand, <laughs> I, I totally understand uh, why people yeah. prefer New Wave in some sense as well. Yeah. Again, it's, it's I don't know. Again, I'm not. I'm not a big fan of the New Wave, is, but I sure like Tip Tree. Yeah. This is. I'm not. Again, I don't have it, and I don't want to say I have anything bad against this style. It's just that for me, it seemed like a very simple story with style tacked onto it, and I just want there to be more to that rather than just a fun oh believe it zombie the future's great there you know there, oh there's a great, great future there um there's a great future there hmm. you know even that last sentence makes me just think oh you know it's gotta you gotta uh, it's weird for me um uh, so so for me in this, this story i found mildly interesting but not really anything Speaking beyond that. Speaking of zombies, there's a, another story by Heinlein that uh, is called All You Zombies. All You Zombies and it starts the same way with the uh, director addressed to, the, to yeah. the reader and the guy tells his story and it all circles back to the end as well. So uh, I think the nice, the nice thing about this is you can tell that even Alice Sheldon if she's you know, doing her own thing, I think she's reading other, other writers uh, and other science fiction. Yeah, I mean, that's what I thought when it says zombies. I was just like, oh, 
time travel story by Heinlein when it started oh. off with zombies and finished with the zombies yeah. as well. So seems to uh, right. maybe that's why I was disappointed that it wasn't a time travel story. Mm. It is a time travel story. It's, it's not. It's nothing about that. There's nothing. The narrator time may time travel. That's nothing. The person who might be the narrator might time travel. That it's not a time travel story. There's just it's nothing not about this. It's not a time travel story. There's nothing about this story. That's not time travel. That's true. No, it's exactly. It's not that. It's not a focus. It's like saying, oh, this is a story about. This is a story about cars. Why? Because a car was mentioned that it has to be more than this is you know this can be a story about television it can be a story about advertising it can be a story about love and power and control it's not a story about time travel i think that it is in the sense that it's about creating the future and if yes that could have been left as a literary device that's what i was saying at the beginning that's all it is it it would for me it would have been better if it was just like and now we're going to go through this time and time again. Like uh, Scott was saying, oh, everyone on the phone now has, has mobile phones in their hands. Was it you said that, Scott? I can't remember. Um, and, yeah, and everyone's yeah, connected and everything like that. But people had the same fears when newspapers came out and when, when people could type and they didn't have to write. And people go, oh, it's going to be so bad. People aren't going to learn how to write properly because everyone's going to use typewriters. Oh, it's going to be terrible when everyone can send you know, messages. We're going to have to, you know, like with telegrams and stuff. It's not going to be good. You know, there's not going to be any, there's not going to be the romance of taking messages and the pony traps and all of this kind of stuff. You know, everything, we have it. It loops around time and time again. And it kind of takes away from it. It's like, oh, and well, I think, no, just I to think punch you in the face with it, let's make it real time. that way makes, makes, makes it just not even as right. Because writing has gotten worse. No, it hasn't. Oh, yes, it has. No, writing has not got worse. It just, oh, writing is, again, you're one of those reactionary things. It's like, oh, writing's got worse. No, it hasn't. It's just evolving. You know, the right. word bird, there's a, the word, there's a sheer volume, I think. Yeah, a, the sheer volume of things that are out there, I the think. The sheer volume of bad writing has probably gone up, but the sheer volume of good writing is also going up. It all averages out. The right. word bird yeah. used to be brid, and horse used to be hross. It turns out it's really difficult to say the word hross, so it changed to horse, and that's what we're going to get. Nuclear is going to be a word. All of these, all these different spelling things, they're all going to evolve. All spelling and all words are going to evolve. And you can't just say, that's bad writing. It's not. It's just cyclical. Everything that you're concerned about now with technology and society and writing and stuff, it just keeps going round in circles. And we're going to have another Delphi. There is going to be another starlet who has a tragic story and, and, and falls in love and then dies or kills herself and stuff like that. It just happens time and time again. If it's not one princess, it's another princess. You know, and this is just another princess. This is just, this story is just Princess Diana. And she was a princess. She married a prince. She, she says, literally became a princess. And in the end, she had an older prince who was a real husband and then fell in love with someone new and was taken away and he had to get her out of that place. You know, it is, it is Princess Diana's story. It just goes over and we just loops through time and time again. And that it's actually like, oh, no, it really is. It really is real time travel kind of takes away from that story that this is. I didn't say it's a real time travel. What I'm saying is it, in in we are complicit in the beginning because we are the reader investing if we buy into this guy's story of investing to create this terrible event. You don't want to say terrible future. Okay. But it's a terrible event because it's going to be super profitable. 
Yeah, it's just tabloids. It's saying, oh, if people didn't buy tabloids, we wouldn't have the tabloid press and we wouldn't, and Princess Diana wouldn't have been chased by the tabloid photographers and wouldn't have died. You know, that's what it's, that's, that's the message or that's what it's talking about. But that's not a new message. And I don't think it's, uh, uh, I don't, I'm not part of that because I don't buy tabloids. You know, I'm not interested in that. It's so nice living in a country where, the, the the main media that you ac- you have access to isn't in your language because you can just bypass all of the shit and now I'm back here in England again and I'm just being bombarded on every side and it's like this is so much easier to ignore when I actually have to put thought into translating the headlines that are coming at me it's way easier for that stuff to bypass you I think everyone should have to read the news in a different language in their second language just so they don't pay that much attention to it and don't invest it's in a it. hell of a good that's idea good. And anyway that's story there Luke there's a story there no it's not it's, it's just that's what this one book you have a guy he's on an alien planet he, he doesn't understand what they're all talking about uh, some of it filters through by uh, his friends and yeah. he finds it to be pathetic it's so nice going to like a juggling festival or up to the Edinburgh Festival or something and just being like at two two steps removed from current events and the news and stuff. Then you hear these these comedians doing topical stuff and it's like, oh, have you heard about this? And they're trying to do stuff about the pedophile scandals in the BBC in the UK and like 90% of the audience are Americans and they're like, what? <laughs> you know? And it's one of those kind of things that I'm much, I love being in there. What? What are you talking about? Who's this famous person? What's that latest pop song? I'm totally cool with being on the periphery of that and not actually contributing to it in any way. And that's why I don't see this as dystopia. This is, it's like saying the whole world is like this. There's no evidence that the whole world is like that. It's a, you know, a big chunk of the world is celebrity obsessed. A big chunk of the world is consumer obsessed. A big chunk of the world is, but it's not for everyone. And it's so easy just to step out of that. Just, you know, move to a different country or stop buying newspapers or turn off. It's, it's the message of this is just turn it off. And, uh, and I like that. There's lots of stuff, like I say, in this, in this book, in this story, there's lots of stuff that I like. Stylistically and storytelling wise, it really annoyed me. Well, not really annoyed me, didn't capture me. And yeah, annoyed me a bit. So, uh, gotcha. it's, again, it's again one of those stories that I've had more fun talking about it than I did reading it. Yeah, but at least it was short, so I didn't. That's the case. I didn't have to. Ha- yeah. I didn't have to spend a long time not being interested reading it or not being entertained reading it because it was a short story. That's the value of oh, the short story. Yeah, but it's so story. easy just to not read the end of a novel. Like you just start a novel, and if you're not enjoying it, just like, hey, I'm a third of the way through this. I'm just not going to finish it, and that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't see. Isn't that what you're talking about, Jenny, as well? You've got the reading challenge, read 50 pages of a book, and then yeah, speed then move on. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was it, the speed, the speed dating. I have no problem with that. And then if it's yeah. good, it, and if it's a good if it's a good 50 pages, I've got another 200 pages to go, unlike a good oh, yeah. short story that you finish up in 50 pages, and you're like, oh, well, or 20 pages or 10 pages, some short story, and you're like, oh, I really want more of that. And you're like, well, that's it. That's all you're getting. Hmm. Maybe next year the author will publish another one. Good luck. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.